0: Chapter 15, Section 3, Subsections A and B of Capital, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital, A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume 1, by Karl Marx. Translated from the third German edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling and edited by Frederick Engels. Part 4, Production of Relative Surplus Value, Chapter 15, Machinery and Modern Industry. Section 3, The Proximate Effects of Machinery on the Workman. The starting point of modern industry is, as we have shown, the revolution in the instruments of labor, and this revolution attains its most highly developed form in the organized system of machinery in a factory. Before we inquire how human material is incorporated with this objective organism, let us consider some general effects of this revolution on the laborer himself. Subsection A. Appropriation of Supplementary Labor Power by Capital. The Employment of Women and Children. In so far as machinery dispenses with muscular power, it becomes a means of employing laborers of slight muscular strength, and those whose bodily development is incomplete, but whose limbs are all the more supple. The labor of women and children was, therefore, the first thing sought for by capitalists who used machinery. That mighty substitute for labor and laborers was forthwith changed into a means for increasing the number of wage laborers, by enrolling under the direct sway of capital every member of the workman's family without distinction of age or sex. Compulsory work for the capitalist usurped the place not only of the children's play, but also of free labor at home within moderate limits for the support of the family. Footnote 38. Dr. Edward Smith, during the cotton crisis caused by the American Civil War, was sent by the english government to lancashire cheshire and other places to report on the sanitary condition of the cotton operatives he reported that from a hygienic point of view and apart from the banishment of the operatives from the factory atmosphere the crisis had several advantages the women now had sufficient leisure to give their infants the breast instead of poisoning them with the so-called godfrey's cordial they had time to learn to cook Unfortunately, the acquisition of this art occurred at a time when they had nothing to cook. But from this we see how capital, for the purposes of its self-expansion, has usurped the labor necessary in the home of the family. This crisis was also utilized to teach sewing to the daughters of the workmen in sewing schools. An American revolution and a universal crisis in order that the working girls who spin for the whole world might learn to sew. End of footnote 38 The value of labor power was determined not only by the labor time necessary to maintain the individual adult laborer, but also by that necessary to maintain his family. Machinery, by throwing every member of that family onto the labor market, spreads the value of the man's labor power over his whole family. It thus depreciates his labor power. To purchase the labor power of a family of four workers may, perhaps, cost more than it formerly did to purchase the labor power of the head of the family but in return, four days' labor takes the place of one, and their price falls in proportion to the excess of the surplus labor of four over the surplus labor of one. In order that the family may live, four people must now not only labor, but expend surplus labor for the capitalist. Thus we see that machinery, while augmenting the human material that forms the principal object of capital's exploiting power, at the same time raises the degree of exploitation. Footnote 39. Quote, the numerical increase of laborers has been great through the growing substitution of female for male and above all of childish for adult labor. Three girls of 13 at wages of from six shillings to eight shillings a week have replaced the one man of mature age of wages varying from 18 shillings to 45 shillings. End of quote. From Thomas de Quincy, The Logical Political Economy, London, 1844. Note to page 147. Since certain family functions, such as nursing and suckling children, cannot be entirely suppressed, the mother as confiscated by capital must try substitutes of some sort. Domestic work, such as sewing and mending, must be replaced by the purchase of ready-made articles. Hence, the diminished expenditure of labor in the house is accompanied by an increased expenditure of money. The cost of keeping the family increases and balances the greater income. In addition to this, economy and judgment in the consumption and preparation of the means of subsistence becomes impossible. Abundant material relating to these facts, which are concealed by official political economy, is to be found in the reports of the inspectors of factories, of the Children's Employment Commission, and more especially in the reports on public health. End of footnote 39. Machinery also revolutionizes out and out the contract between the laborer and the capitalist, which formally fixes their mutual relations. Taking the exchange of commodities as our basis, our first assumption was that capitalist and laborer met as free persons, as independent owners of commodities, the one possessing money and means of production, the other labor power. But now the capitalist buys children and young persons under age. Previously the workman sold his own labor power, which he disposed of, nominally, as a free agent. Now he sells wife and child. He has become a slave-dealer." In striking contrast with the great fact that the shortening of the hours of labor of women and children in English factories was exacted from capital by the male operatives, We find in the latest reports of the Children's Employment Commission traits of the operative parents in relation to the traffic in children that are truly revolting and thoroughly like slave-dealing. But the Pharisee of a capitalist, as may be seen from the same reports, denounces this brutality which he himself creates, perpetuates, and exploits, and which he moreover baptizes as, quote, freedom of labor, end quote. Quote, Infant labor has been called into aid even to work for their own daily bread, without strength to endure such disproportionate toil, without instruction to guide their future life, they have been thrown into a situation physically and morally polluted. The Jewish historian has remarked upon the overthrow of Jerusalem by Titus, that it was no wonder it should have been destroyed with such a signal destruction, when an inhuman mother sacrificed her own offspring to satisfy the cravings of absolute hunger." public economy concentrated by Carlyle, eighteen thirty three page sixty six footnote forty the demand for children's labor often resembles in form the inquiries for negro slaves such as were formerly to be read among the advertisements in american journals quote, my attention end quote, says an english factory inspector quote, was drawn to an advertisement in the local paper of one of the most important manufacturing towns of my district, of which the following is a copy: "Wanted twelve to twenty young persons, not younger than what can pass for thirteen years. Wages four shillings a week. Apply, etc." Footnote forty-one. A Redgrave in Reports of Inspectors of Factories for the thirty-first of October, eighteen fifty-eight, pages forty and forty-one. End of footnote forty one. The phrase quote, "what can pass for thirteen years," end of quote, has reference to the fact that by the Factory Act children under thirteen years may work only six hours. A surgeon officially appointed must certify their age. The manufacturer therefore asks for children who look as if they are already thirteen years old the decrease often by leaps and bounds in the number of children under thirteen years employed in factories a decrease that is shown in an astonishing manner by the english statistics of the last twenty years was for the most part according to the evidence of the factory inspectors themselves the work of the certifying surgeons who overstated the age of the children agreeably to the capitalists greed for exploitation and the sordid trafficking needs of the parents in the notorious district of bethnal green a public market is held every Monday and Tuesday morning, where children of both sexes from nine years of age upwards hire themselves out to the silk manufacturers. Quote, the usual terms are one shilling eightpence a week. This belongs to the parents, and uh, two shillings for myself and tea. End of quote. The contract is binding only for the week. The scene and language, while this market is going on, are quite disgraceful. End of quote. Footnote forty-two. Children's Employment Commission Fifth Report, London eighteen sixty six, page eighty one, note thirty one. Added in the fourth German edition, the Bethnal Green silk industry is now almost destroyed. FE End of Footnote forty two. It has also occurred in England that women have taken quote children from the workhouse and let any one have them out for two shillings sixpence a week, end of quote. Footnote forty three. Children's Employment Commission, third report, London, 1864, page 53, note 15, end of footnote 43. In spite of legislation, the number of boys sold in Great Britain by their parents to act as live chimney-sweeping machines, although there exist plenty of machines to replace them, exceeds 2,000, footnote 44, location cited, fifth report, page 22, note 137, end of footnote 44 the revolution effected by machinery in the juridical relations between the buyer and the seller of labor power, causing the transaction as a whole to lose the appearance of a contract between free persons, afforded the English Parliament an excuse founded on juridical principles for the interference of the State with factories. Whenever the law limits the labor of children to six hours and industry is not before interfered with, the complaints of the manufacturers are always renewed they allege that numbers of the parents withdraw their children from the industry brought under the act in order to sell them where quote, freedom of labor end of quote, still rules i e where children under thirteen years are compelled to work like grown-up people and therefore can be got rid of at a higher price but since capital is by nature a leveller Since it exacts in every sphere of production equality in the conditions of the exploitation of labor, the limitation by law of children's labor in one branch of industry becomes the cause of its limitation in others. We have already alluded to the physical deterioration as well of the children and young persons as of the women, whom machinery first directly in the factories that shoot up on its bases and then indirectly in all the remaining branches of industry, subjects to the exploitation of capital. In this place, therefore, we dwell only on one point—the enormous mortality, during the first few years of their life, of the children of the operatives. In sixteen of the registration districts into which England is divided, there are, for every one hundred thousand children alive under the age of one year, only nine thousand deaths in a year, on an average, in one district only seven thousand and forty-seven. In 24 districts the deaths are over 10,000, but under 11,000, in 39 districts over 11,000, but under 12,000, in 48 districts over 12,000, but under 13,000, in 22 districts over 20,000, in 25 districts over 21,000, in 17 over 22,000, and in 11 over 23,000. In Who, Wolverhampton, Ashton-under-Lyne, and Preston, over 24,000, in Nottingham, Stockport, and Bradford, over 25,000, in Wizbeach 16,000, and in Manchester, 26,125. Footnote 45. Sixth Report on Public Health, London, 1864, page 34. End of footnote 45. As was shown by an official medical inquiry in the year 1861, the high death rates are, apart from local causes, principally due to the employment of the mothers away from their homes, and to the neglect and maltreatment consequent on her absence, such as, amongst others, insufficient nourishment, unsuitable food, and dosing with opiates, besides this there arises an unnatural estrangement between mother and child and as a consequence intentional starving and poisoning of the children footnote forty six quote it the Inquiry of 1861 showed, moreover, that while, with the described circumstances, infants perish under the neglect and mismanagement which their mothers' occupations imply, the mothers become, to a grievous extent, denaturalized toward their offspring, commonly not troubling themselves much at the death, and even sometimes taking direct measures to insure it, end of quote, location cited, end of footnote 46. In those agricultural districts, quote, where a minimum in the employment of women exists, the death rate is, on the other hand, very low, end of quote. footnote 47, location cited, page 454, end of footnote 47. The Inquiry Commission of 1861 led, however, to the unexpected result that in some purely agricultural districts bordering on the North Sea, the death rate of children under one year old almost equaled that of the worst factory districts. Dr. Julian Hunter was therefore commissioned to investigate this phenomenon on the spot. His report is incorporated with the sixth report on public health. Footnote 48. Location cited, pages 454 to 463, quote, Report by Dr. Henry Julian Hunter on the excessive mortality of infants in some rural districts of England, end of quote. End of footnote 48. Up to that time it was supposed that the children were decimated by malaria and other diseases peculiar to low-lying and marshy districts. But the inquiry showed the very opposite, namely, that the same cause which drove away malaria, the conversion of the land from a morass in winter and a scanty pasture in summer into fruitful cornland, created the exceptional death rate of the infants. Footnote 49. Location cited, page 39, and pages 455 and 456. and of footnote 49. The 70 medical men whom Dr. Hunter examined in that district were, quote, wonderfully in accord, end of quote, on this point. In fact, the revolution in the mode of cultivation had led to the introduction of the industrial system married women who work in gangs along with boys and girls are for a stipulated sum of money placed at the disposal of the farmer by a man called the undertaker who contracts for the whole gang these gangs will sometimes travel many miles from their own village they are to be met morning and evening on the roads dressed in short petticoats with suitable coats and boots and sometimes trousers looking wonderfully strong and healthy but tainted with a customary immorality and heedless of the fatal results which their love of this busy and independent life is bringing on their unfortunate offspring who are pining at home footnote 50 location cited page 456 end of footnote 50 every phenomenon of the factory districts is here reproduced including but to a greater extent ill-disguised infanticide and dosing children with opiates Note fifty-one. In the agricultural as well as in the factory districts, the consumption of opium among the grown-up laborers, both male and female, is extending daily. Quote, to push the sale of opiate is the great aim of some enterprising wholesale merchants. By druggists, it is considered the leading article. End quote. Location cited, page 459 infants that take opiates, quote, shrank up into little old men, end of quote, or, quote, wizened like little monkeys, end of quote. Location cited, page 460. We see here how India and China avenged themselves on England. End of footnote 51. Quote, My knowledge of such evils, says Dr. Simon, the medical officer of the Privy Council and editor-in-chief of the Reports on Public Health, may excuse the profound misgiving with which I regard any large industrial employment of adult women. End of quote. Footnote 52. Location cited, page 37. End of footnote 52. Quote, Happy indeed, exclaims Mr. Baker, the factory inspector in his official report, happy indeed will it be for the manufacturing districts of England, when every married woman having a family is prohibited from working in any textile works at all. End of quote. Footnote 53. Reporter of the Inspectors of Factories for the 31st October 1862, page 59. Mr. Baker was formerly a doctor. End of footnote 53. The moral degradation caused by the capitalistic exploitation of women and children has been so exhaustively depicted by F. Engels in his Lager der arbeitenden Klasse Englands* and other writers that I need only mention the subject in this place. But the intellectual desolation, artificially produced by converting immature human beings into mere machines for the fabrication of surplus value, a state of mind clearly distinguishable from that natural ignorance which keeps the mind fallow without destroying its capacity for development, its natural fertility, this desolation finally compelled even the English Parliament to make elementary education a compulsory condition to the so-called productive employment of children under fourteen years, in every industry subject to the factory acts. The spirit of capitalist production stands out clearly in the ludicrous wording of the so-called education clauses in the factory acts, in the absence of an administrative machinery, an absence that again makes the compulsion illusory, in the opposition of the manufacturers themselves to these education clauses, and in the tricks and dodges they put in practice for evading them. for this the legislature is alone to blame by having passed a delusive law which while it would seem to provide that the children employed in factories shall be educated contains no enactment by which that professed end can be secured it provides nothing more than that the children shall on certain days of the week, and for a certain number of hours, three, in each day, be enclosed within the four walls of a place called a school, and that the employer of the child shall receive weekly a certificate to that effect, signed by a person designated by the subscriber as a schoolmaster or schoolmistress. End of quote. Footnote 54. L. Horner in Reports of Inspector of Factories for 30th June, 1857, page 17. End of footnote 54. Previous to the passing of the amended Factory Act, 1844, it happened not unfrequently that the certificates of attendance at school were signed by the schoolmaster or schoolmistress with a cross, as they themselves were unable to write, quote, on one occasion on visiting a place called a school from which certificates of school attendance had issued i was so struck with the ignorance of the master that i said to him pray sir can you read his reply was i summat and as a justification of his right to grant certificates he added at any rate i am before my scholars the, quote. the inspectors when the bill of eighteen forty four was in preparation did not fail to represent the disgraceful state of the places called schools, certificates from which they were obliged to admit as a compliance with the laws, but they were successful only in obtaining thus much, that since the passing of the Act of 1845, the figures in the school certificate must be filled up in the handwriting of the schoolmaster, who must also sign his Christian and surname in full. (Footnote 55) L. Horner in Report of the Inspector of Factories for 31st October 1855, pages 18 and 19, and the footnote 55. Sir John Kincaid, Factory Inspector for Scotland, relates experiences of the same kind. Quote, The first school we visited was kept by Mrs. Anne Killen, Upon asking her to spell her name, she straightway made a mistake by beginning with the letter C, but correcting herself immediately, she said her name began with a K. On looking at her signature, however, in the school certificate books, I noticed that she spelt it in various ways, while her handwriting left no doubt as to her unfitness to teach. She herself also acknowledged that she could not keep the register." In a second school I found a schoolroom fifteen feet long and ten feet wide, and counted in this space seventy five children who were gabbling something unintelligible. Footnote fifty six. Sir John Kincaid in report of the inspector of factories for the thirty first, october eighteen fifty eight, pages thirty one and thirty two. End of footnote fifty six. But it is not only in the miserable places above referred to, that the children obtain certificates of school attendance, without having received instruction of any value. For in many schools where there is a competent teacher, his efforts are of little avail from the distracting crowd of children of all ages, from infants of three years old and upward. His livelihood miserable at the best, depending on the pence received from the greatest number of children whom it is possible to cram into the space to this is to be added scanty school furniture deficiency of books and other materials for teaching and the depressing effect upon the poor children themselves of a close and noisome atmosphere i have been in many such schools where i've seen rows of children doing absolutely nothing and this is certified as school attendance and in statistical returns such children are set down as being educated End of quote. footnote 57 L. Horner, in Reports, etc., for the 31st of October, 1857, pages 17 and 18, and the footnote 57. In Scotland, the manufacturers try all they can to do without the children that are obliged to attend school. It requires no further argument to prove that the educational clauses of the Factory Act, being held in such disfavor among mill-owners, tend in a great measure to exclude that class of children alike from the employment and the benefit of education contemplated by this act. End of quote. Footnote 58. Sir John Kincaid in Reports, etc., 31st October, 1856, page 66. End of footnote 58. Horribly grotesque does this appear in print works, which are regulated by a special act. By that act, quote, Every child, before being employed in a print work, must have attended school for at least thirty days, and not less than one hundred and fifty hours, during the six months immediately preceding such first day of employment; and during the continuance of its employment in the print works, it must attend for a like period of thirty days, and one hundred and fifty hours during every successive period of six months. The attendance at school must be between eight a m and six p m no attendance of less than two and a half hours nor more than five hours on any one day shall be reckoned as part of the hundred and fifty hours under ordinary circumstances the children attend school morning and afternoon for thirty days for at least five hours each day and upon the expiration of the thirty days the statutory total of one hundred and fifty hours having been attained having in their language made up their book they return to the print work, where they continue until the six months have expired, when another instalment of school attendance becomes due, and they again seek the school until the book is again made up. Many boys having attended school for the required number of hours, when they return to school after the expiration of their six months work in the print work, are in the same condition as when they first attended school as print work boys, that they have lost all they gained by their previous school attendance. In other print works, the children's attendance at school is made to depend altogether upon the exigencies of the work and the establishment. The requisite number of hours is made up each six months, by installments consisting of from three to five hours at a time, spreading over perhaps the whole six months. For instance, the attendance on one day might be from 8 to 11 a.m., on another day from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m., and the child might not appear at school again for several days when it would attend from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. then it might attend for three or four days consecutively or for a week then it would not appear at school for three weeks or a month after that upon some odd days at some odd hours when the operative who employed it chose to spare it and thus the child was as it were buffeted from school to work from work to school until the tale of 150 hours was told End of quote. footnote 59 A. Redgrave, in Report of the Inspectors of Factories, 31st October, 1857, pages 41-42. to In those industries where the Factory Act proper, not the Print Works Act referred to in the text, has been in force for some time, the obstacles in the way of the education clauses have, in recent years, been overcome. In industries not under the Act, the views of Mr. J. Geddes, a glass manufacturer, still extensively prevail. He informed Mr. White, one of the inquiry commissioners, quote, as far as I can see, the greater amount of education which a part of the working class has enjoyed for some years past is an evil. It is dangerous because it makes them independent. End of quote. Children's Employee Commission, Fourth Report, London, 1865, page 253. End of footnote 59. By the excessive addition of women and children to the ranks of the workers, Machinery, at last, breaks down the resistance which the male operatives in the manufacturing period continue to oppose to the despotism of capital. Footnote 60. Quote, Mr. E., a manufacturer, informed me that he employed females exclusively at his power looms, gives a decided preference to married females, especially those who have families at home dependent on them for support. They are attentive, docile, more so than unmarried females, and are compelled to use their utmost exertions to procure the necessaries of life. Thus are the virtues, the peculiar virtues of the female character, to be perverted to her injury. Thus all that is most dutiful and tender in her nature is made a means of her bondage and suffering. End of quote. Ten Hours Factory Bill, The Speech of Lord Ashley, March fifteenth, London, 1844, page 20 end of footnote 60 subsection b prolongation of the working day if machinery be the most powerful means for increasing the productiveness of labour i e for shortening the working time required in the production of a commodity it becomes in the hands of capital the most powerful means in those industries first invaded by it for lengthening the working day beyond all bounds set by human nature It creates, on the one hand, new conditions by which capital is enabled to give free scope to this its constant tendency, and, on the other hand, new motives with which to whet capital's appetite for the labor of others. In the first place, in the form of machinery, the implements of labor become automatic, things moving and working independent of the workman they are thenceforth an industrial perpetuum mobile that would go on producing forever, did it not meet with certain natural obstructions in the weak bodies and the strong wills of its human attendants. The automaton as capital, and because it is capital, is endowed in the person of the capitalist with intelligence and will. It is therefore animated by the longing to reduce to a minimum the resistance offered by that repellent yet elastic natural barrier, man." Footnote 61. Quote, Since the general introduction of machinery, human nature has been forced far beyond its average strength. End of quote. Robert Owen, Observations on the Effects of the Manufacturing System, 2nd edition, London, 1817. End of footnote 61. This resistance is moreover lessened by the apparent lightness of machine work, and by the more pliant and docile character of the women and children employed on it footnote sixty two the english who have a tendency to look upon the earliest form of appearance of a thing as the cause of its existence are in the habit of attributing the long hours of work in factories to the extensive kidnapping of children practiced by capitalists in the infancy of the factory system, and on workhouses and orphanages, by means of which robbery, unresisting material for exploitation, was procured. Thus, for instance, Fysadon, himself a manufacturer, says, it is evident that the long hours of work were brought about by the circumstance of so great a number of destitute children being supplied from different parts of the country, that the masters were independent of the hands, and that having once established the custom by means of the miserable materials they had procured in this way, they could impose it on their neighbors with the greater facility. End of quote. J. Fisoden, The Curse of the Factory System, London, 1836, page 11. With reference to the labor of women, Saunders, a factory inspector, says in his report of 1844, quote, Amongst the female operatives, there are some women who, for many weeks in succession, except for a few days, are employed from 6 a.m. till midnight, with less than two hours for meals, so that on five days of the week they have only six hours left out of the 24 for going to and from their homes and resting in bed. End of quote. End of footnote 62. The productiveness of machinery is, as we saw, inversely proportional to the value transferred by it to the product. The longer the life of the machine, the greater is the mass of the products over which the value transmitted by the machine is spread, and the less is the portion of that value added to each single commodity. The active lifetime of a machine is, however, clearly dependent on the length of the working day or on the duration of the daily labor process multiplied by the number of days for which the process is carried on. The wear and tear of a machine is not exactly proportional to its working time, and even if it were were so, a machine working sixteen hours daily for seven and a half years covers as long a working period as, and transmits to the total product no more value than, the same machine would if it worked only eight hours daily for fifteen years. But, in the first case, the value of the machine would be reproduced twice as quickly as in the latter, and the capitalist would, by this use of the machine, absorb in seven and a half years as much surplus value as in the second case he would in fifteen. The material wear and tear of a machine is of two kinds. The one arises from use, as coins wear away by circulating, the other from non-use, as a sword rusts when left in its scabbard. The latter kind is due to the elements. The former is more or less directly proportional, the latter to a certain extent inversely proportional to the use of the machine. Footnote 63 Occasion, injury to the delicate moving parts of a metallic mechanism by inaction. End of quote. Your location cited, page 281. End of footnote 63 But, in addition to the material wear and tear, a machine also undergoes what we may call a moral depreciation. It loses exchange value, either by machines of the same sort being produced cheaper than it, or by better machines entering into competition with it. Footnote 64. The Manchester Spinner, Times, 26 November 1862, before referred to, says in relation to this subject, It, namely, the allowance for deterioration of machinery, is also intended to cover the loss which is constantly arising from the superseding of machines before they are worn out by others of a new and better construction." In both cases, be the machine ever so young and full of life, its value is no longer determined by the labor actually materialized in it, but by the labor time requisite to reproduce either it or the better machine. It has therefore lost value more or less. The shorter the period taken to reproduce its total value, the less is the danger of moral depreciation, and the longer the working day, the shorter is that period. When machinery is first introduced into an industry, new methods of reproducing it more cheaply follow blow upon blow, and so do improvements that not only affect individual parts and details of the machine, but its entire build. It is therefore in the early days of the life of machinery that this special incentive to the prolongation of the working day makes itself felt most acutely." Footnote sixty-five. Quote, it has been estimated roughly that the first individual of a newly invented machine will cost about five times as much as the construction of the second. End of quote. Babbage, location cited, page 349. End of footnote 65. Footnote 66. Quote, "the improvements which took place not long ago in frames for making patent net were so great that a machine in good repair which had cost 1200 pounds sold a few years after for 60 pounds improvements succeeded each other so rapidly that machines which had never been finished were abandoned in the hands of their makers because new improvements had superseded their utility" End of quote. babbage location cited page 233 in these stormy go-ahead times, therefore, the Tull manufacturers soon extended the working day, by means of double sets of hands, from the original eight hours to twenty-four. End of footnote 66 Given the length of the working day, all other circumstances remaining the same, the exploitation of double the number of workmen demands not only a doubling of that part of constant capital, which is invested in machinery and buildings, but also of that part which is laid out in raw material and auxiliary substances. The lengthening of the working day, on the other hand, allows of production on an extended scale without any alteration in the amount of capital laid out on machinery and buildings. Footnote 67. It is self-evident that amidst the ebbings and flowings of the markets and the alternate expansions and contractions of demand, Occasions will constantly recur in which the manufacturer may employ additional floating capital without employing additional fixed capital, if additional quantities of raw material can be worked up without incurring an additional expense for buildings and machinery." R. Torrens, On Wages and Combination, London, 1834, page 64. End of footnote 67. Not only is there, therefore, an increase of surplus value, but the outlay necessary to obtain it diminishes. It is true that this takes place more or less with every lengthening of the working day, but in the case under consideration the change is more marked because the capital converted into the instruments of labor preponderates to a greater degree. Footnote 68. This circumstance is mentioned only for the sake of completeness, for I shall not consider the rate of profit, i.e., the ratio of the surplus value to the total capital advanced, until I come to the third book. End of footnote sixty-eight The development of the factory system fixes a constantly increasing portion of the capital in a form in which, on the one hand, its value is capable of continual self-expansion, and in which, on the other hand, it loses both use value and exchange value whenever it loses contact with living labor. When a laborer, said Mr. Ashworth, a cotton magnate, to Professor Nassau W. Sr., Lays down his spade, he renders useless for that period a capital worth eighteen pence. When one of our people leaves the mill, he renders useless a capital that has cost one hundred thousand pounds sterling. Footnote 69. Sr. Letters on the Factory Act, London, 1837, pages 13 and 14. End of Footnote sixty nine. Only fancy, making useless for a single moment a capital that has cost one hundred thousand pounds sterling. It is in truth monstrous that a single one of our people should ever leave the factory. The increased use of machinery, as senior after the instruction he received from Ashworth clearly perceives, makes a constantly increasing lengthening of the working day quote, desirable end of footnote seventy. The great proportion of fixed to circulating capital makes long hours of work desirable. With the increased use of machinery, etc., the motives to long hours of work will become greater, as the only means by which a large proportion of fixed capital can be made profitable. Location cited, pages 11 through 13. There are certain expenses upon a mill which go on in the same proportion whether the mill be running short or full-time, as, for instance, rent rates and taxes, insurance against fire, wages of several permanent servants, deterioration of machinery, with various other charges upon a manufacturing establishment, the proportion of which to profits increases as the production decreases." Report of the Inspector of Factories for the 31st October 1862, page 19, end of footnote 70. Machinery produces relative surplus value, not only by directly depreciating the value of labor power and by indirectly cheapening the same through cheapening the commodities that enter into its reproduction, but also when it's first introduced sporadically into an industry, By converting the labor employed by the owner of that machinery into labor of a higher degree and greater efficacy, by raising the social value of the article produced above its individual value and thus enabling the capitalist to replace the value of a day's labor power by a smaller portion of the value of a day's product. During this transition period, when the use of machinery is a sort of monopoly, the profits are therefore exceptional and the capitalist endeavors to exploit thoroughly the sunny time of this his first love by prolonging the working day as much as possible. The magnitude of the profit whets his appetite for more profit. As the use of machinery becomes more general in a particular industry, the social value of the product sinks down to its individual value. And the law that surplus value does not arise from the labor power that has been replaced by the machinery, but from the labor power actually employed in working with the machinery, asserts itself. Surplus value arises from variable capital alone. And we saw that the amount of surplus value depends on two factors, namely, the rate of surplus value and the number of the workmen simultaneously employed. Given the length of the working day, the rate of surplus value is determined by the relative duration of the necessary labor and of the surplus labor in a day. The number of the laborers simultaneously employed depends on its side on the ratio of the variable to the constant capital. Now, however much the use of machinery may increase the surplus labor at the expense of the necessary labor by heightening the productiveness of labor, It is clear that it attains this result only by diminishing the number of workmen employed by a given amount of capital. It converts what was formerly variable capital, invested in labor power, into machinery which, being constant capital, does not produce surplus value. It is impossible, for instance, to squeeze as much surplus value out of two as out of twenty-four laborers. If each of these twenty-four men gives only one hour of surplus labor in twelve, the twenty-four men give together twenty-four hours of surplus labor, while twenty-four hours is the total labor of the two men. Hence, the application of machinery to the production of surplus value implies a contradiction which is immanent in it. Since of the two factors of the surplus value created by a given amount of capital, one, the rate of surplus value cannot be increased except by diminishing the other, the number of workmen. This contradiction comes to light as soon as, by the general employment of machinery in a given industry, the value of the machine-produced commodity regulates the value of all commodities of the same sort, and it is this contradiction that in its turn drives the capitalist, without his being conscious of the fact, to excessive lengthening of the working day, in order that he may compensate the decrease in the relative number of laborers exploited by an increase not only of the relative, but of the absolute surplus labor footnote 71 why it is that the capitalist and also the political economists who are imbued with his views are unconscious of this imminent contradiction will appear from the first part of the third book End of footnote 71 if then the capitalistic employment of machinery on the one hand, supplies new and powerful motives to an excessive lengthening of the working day, and radically changes as well the methods of labor, as also the character of the social working organism, in such a manner as to break down all opposition to this tendency. On the other hand, it produces partly by opening out to the capitalist new strata of the working class, previously inaccessible to him, partly by setting free the laborers it supplants, a surplus working population which is compelled to submit to the dictation of capital footnote 72 it is one of the greatest merits of ricardo to have seen in machinery not only the means of producing commodities but of creating a quote redundant population end of, quote. End of footnote 72 hence that remarkable phenomenon in the history of modern industry that machinery sweeps away every moral and natural restriction on the length of the working day Hence, too, the economic paradox that the most powerful instrument for shortening labor time becomes the most unfailing means for placing every moment of the laborer's time and that of his family at the disposal of the capitalist for the purpose of expanding the value of his capital. If, dreamed Aristotle, the greatest thinker of antiquity, if every tool, when summoned, or even of its own accord, could do the work that befits it, just as the creations of Daedalus moved of themselves, or the tripods of Hephaestus went of their own accord to their sacred work, if the weavers' shuttles were to weave of themselves, then there would be no need either of apprentices for the master workers, or of slaves for the lords. End of quote. Footnote 73, F. Beese, the Philosophie des Aristoteles, Volume 2, Berlin 1842, page 408. End of footnote seventy three and Antipatros, a Greek poet of the time of Cicero, hailed the invention of the water-wheel for grinding corn, an invention that is the elementary form of all machinery, as the giver of freedom to female slaves and the bringer back of the golden age footnote seventy four I give below the translation of this poem by Stolberg because it brings into relief quite in the spirit of former quotations referring to division of labor, the antithesis between the views of the ancients and the moderns. Spare the hand that grinds the corn, O miller girls, and softly sleep. Let Chanticleer announce the morn in vain. Dio has commanded the work of the girls to be done by the nymphs, and now they skip lightly over the wheels, so that the shaken axles revolve with their spokes and pull round the load of the revolving stones let us live the life of our fathers and let us rest from work and enjoy the gifts that the goddess sends us schonet der malenden hand o müllerinnen und schlafet sanft es verkündet der hahn euch den morgen umsonst »Deo hat die Arbeit der Mädchen den Nymphen befohlen, und itzt hüpfen sie leicht über die Räder dahin, daß die erschütteten Achsen mit ihren Speichen sich wälzen und im Kreise die Last drehen des wälzenden Steins. Lasst uns leben das Leben der Väter, und lasst uns der Gaben arbeitslos uns freuen, welche die Göttin uns schenkt.« Gedichte aus dem Griechischen, übersetzt von Christian Graf zu Stolberg, Hamburg, 1782, and footnote 74. Oh, those heathens! They understood, as the learned Bastiat, and before him the still wiser McCulloch have discovered, nothing of political economy and Christianity. They did not, for example, comprehend that machinery is the surest means of lengthening the working day. They perhaps excused the slavery of one on the grounds that it was a means to the full development of another. But to preach slavery of the masses, in order that a few crude and half-educated parvenus might become, quote, eminent spinners, or extensive sausage-makers, and influential shoe-black dealers, to do this they lacked the bump of Christianity.